is Our American Stories, and today we have Randall Haley's story of her father. Every year she goes home to a small town in Mississippi called Clarksdale for the Juke Joint Blues Festival. And by the way, if you've never been to Clarksdale, get there because the greatest guitarists in the world have spent time there. And that's everybody from Jimmy Page to Eric Clapton and Led Zeppelin spent time in there listening to all the great blues material that's in their blues museum. And this is the birthplace of the blues, this part of the country. Well, she wrote an article, Randall Haley, entitled Reflections Jukin' in the Delta with My Old Man for a publication called HottyToddy.com, one of the local news sources in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast. Today, she shares that story with us. Call me when you can, he said. That's not out of the ordinary text message from Daddy. Between the hours of 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., Daddy and I are both busy working. We only call if it's urgent, otherwise, when you can, suffices. This morning was no different. I assumed it was going to be one of his usual, how do I do this on Facebook, or can you help me do that on the computer? Don't get me wrong, it was. But he asked me something this time that left me reminiscing. Born and raised in Clarksdale, Mississippi, you don't miss the Juke Joint Festival. It's the event of the year. Being the home of the blues, Clarksdale had to find another way to celebrate the music, and so there was Juke Joint. If, like me, you've moved away from the town, you go home for Juke Joint. It's just as important as Thanksgiving or Christmas. So he asked if I was planning to come home for this year's festival. Well, of course, I told him. And he asked, would you have time to walk around town with your old man? I can't remember Juke Joint Saturday that I didn't walk around town with my old man. I carry my camera to capture sights that aren't typically seen in the small Delta town, such as tourists from the Netherlands or Australia. And he holds me up at every corner to speak to every familiar face he sees, like Mr. Pettit, who we probably spoke to last week. As frustrating as it can be for my impatience, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Being able to carry a conversation with anyone he comes across, whether a new face or familiar, may be the only trait that I didn't get from the old man, but sometimes I wish I did. I got the sarcasm. My mother may even tell you I got a double dose. I got the wit, the work ethic, the sense of responsibility. Even if he had to drill it into me, I got it. Several of the characteristics that make my old man who he is were passed down to me, including the not-so-great, like pale skin and skinny legs. Well, thanks a lot, Dad. Growing up, he was hard on me. I remember tears upon tears, from softball games to the boy I thought I was in love with. When the old man was disappointed in me, the whole town knew. But of all the heartaches I've given him, and there were many, Every heartfelt punishment ended with the same few words. Nobody loves you like your daddy does. He's right. Of course, he'll tell you he's never been wrong, but I can tell you with the certainty, nobody on this earth loves me as much as that old man. Even when I fought tooth and toenail with him at 17 years old and said some of the most hurtful things a daughter could ever say to her father, he hugged me with tear-filled eyes and he told me again, If I had to hurt and suffer to know that he loved me more than that boy that I was ready to run away with, then so be it. 
Daddy wasn't one to give in. I had to learn the hard way many times. I could be angry with him. I could hate him for the rest of my life. But I wasn't to leave that house, and you best believe I didn't. Today he asked me things like, how old are you? Followed by, okay, you don't need your daddy's opinion on every decision you make in your life. I could go on and on about him and all that he's done for me, perhaps even write a whole book. But for the sake of this story, I'll revert back to the Juke Joint Festival. Block after block, we stroll through town listening to blues that rings out from every corner. Stepping into stores to see what's new and who we'll spend our dollar with this time. I snap photo after photo of locals and tourists alike. Whether I take 10 photos or 400, Daddy critiques each one. We may even share a few guilt-filled laughs as we walk through town. They usually start something like, Hey, look at that guy. Or, did you see what she had on? But the day that I snapped this photo was different. I thought I was capturing a special, unusual moment. Here my old man is with a toy at the dining table. The same get-your-elbows-off-the-table, chew-with-your-mouth-closed father that made us sit together as a family for dinner every night. But that wasn't what I captured. Moments after this photo was taken, that same playful, friendly man began praying aloud, pushing chairs and tables aside to clear way for paramedics to tend to the poor fellow who had a heart attack right beside us. I didn't know who he was at the time, but Daddy did. Mr. Whitman Bell passed away later that afternoon in the Clarksdale Hospital. And I'd like to think Daddy was talking to Mr. Bell during his last moments on earth in this photo. At least Mr. Bell was sitting around the table feasting and fellowshipping with friends during Clarksdale's most joyous time of the year when God decided to take him. It was hard to juke the rest of that year's festival, but I'm glad that I was there. Whether it was to see my old man's faith or that the love that I've known for so many years wasn't just for me. I was blessed to be with him that day, and I'm forever blessed to call him mine. So when tomorrow rolls around, whether we're dancing our skinny legs off to some rhythmic blues or we're testing our faith in the midst of a packed restaurant, sure, Dad, I'd be delighted to take a walk around town with my old man. And what a beautiful story. What a voice. Randall Haley's, let's just face it, it was a love note to her dad. And any dad listening, you can only hope that you get a piece of writing like that for you in your lifetime. And I just hope I get something like that for my little girl. I'm tearing up a little bit. Hope you are too. That's what we like to do here on this show. And thanks for the work on this, Faith, and the whole team. These are the kind of stories we bring you every day here on Our American Stories. Randall Haley's story, a little piece of earth in the Mississippi Delta. Her dad's story, too, here on Our American Stories. Baby, bring my rocking shoes, cause tonight I'm gonna rock away all my blues. Have you heard the news?
This is Our American Stories, and we often like to tell the stories of people from every walk of life, including famous actors and actresses. We did an hour on Al Pacino, you must see, and also an hour on Barbara Streisand, you must see and hear as well. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org and check out all that we do. Those were on This Days in History. And here we're going to talk about, well, for the next few segments, a woman that many people recognize, but few are familiar with her life. This is the story, thanks to Faith, of Audrey Hepburn. Stunning. A beauty icon. Charming. Delightful. One could say enrapturing. Yet, her large sad brown eyes tell us another story. A story that the Hollywood glitz and glam failed to tell. Audrey Hepburn. If you don't know the name, surely you have seen the face. With her show-stopping smile, she starred in films such as Roman Holiday, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Charade, and of course, My Fair Lady, among many others. But before she was widely known for her acting, Audrey Hepburn was not born with a silver spoon in her mouth. She was a child of World War II. Born in Brussels, Belgium on May 4, 1929, Audrey did not grow up acting. In fact, she grew up dancing. Then the war began and Audrey experienced what the Dutch referred to as their hunger winter, which occurred in the winter of 1944 to 1945. A German blockade cut off food and fuel shipments from farm areas. As many as 22,000 people died. So for Audrey, adolescence had been overshadowed by the struggle for survival. And she faced severe malnutrition. Something that would affect her health for the rest of her life. However, while the war was difficult, her father abandoning her family had perhaps an even larger impact. With his leaving, she now carried a large burden of insecurities that many could see. During World War II, she delivered hidden messages for their resistance, which she would store in her ballet shoes. When the war ended, emergency food packages were brought in abundance. The packages arrived from the United Nations Relief Fund, the forerunner of UNICEF, which would play a large role in her life later on. In 1948, sadly, the war had destroyed their hometown in Holland, so Audrey and her mother moved to London. Audrey started studying on a ballet scholarship. However, at 5'7", she was too tall to achieve the status of prima ballerina. So she began pursuing a different type of performance. Here's Audrey speaking of her acting career. By chance, fall into a period in movie making when these directors were around and wanted me. And that has been a sort of miracle of my career because I haven't made that many pictures. But they were all, one after the other, four great directors with great actors. I, had, I was not an actress when I came to movies, there was a dancer. So I had no experience. I had experience in working, working hard, ballet is hard, discipline. Those were the things I could contribute. I wasn't a tearing beauty. I didn't have a, any way for them to know of whether I could really act. But in Willie's sensitivity, in Billy's sensitivity, they realized there was enough there for them as a human being to draw out. And 
that has been my limitations also. I've never been able to declaim Shakespeare or do those kind of things. What I'm really trying to say is I never really became an actress. I never did the repertoire in the theatre or the whole gamut in movies. It was a sort of miraculous period in my life when I was in the hands of these people and I was born with something that appealed to an audience at that particular time and it, that's why it, it's, it never ceases to to puzzle and yet also to to dazzle me in a way that I, I mean I never really became an actress mm. in the sense that yes I went from one picture to the other from one director to the other from one actor to the other I just walked on the set knowing my lines and took it from there the famous director William Wyler came to England looking for just such a young actress as her. He came to England looking for an unknown to do the picture, which in fact was my only qualification for that picture. I was working in musicals. I just acquired an agent, or rather the agent had acquired me, <laughs> and I was doing little bits for television and in movies to, to, to earn an extra pound or two. Or a shilling in those days went a long way. And um, he really ordered a lot of tests made, and I was one of them. He did ask to see me. He met with me just a few minutes just to sort of check me out, let me come to the hotel. I think he was staying at Claridge's in those days. And, uh, and then he left town. But he left me in the hands of a marvelous English director called Sorrel Dickinson. When he directed this test, he was fully aware of the fact that I was petrified and didn't know how to go about the test or anything. And what he did do, which was very good and very clever and very fortunate for me, is once I'd played my scene, which I did very badly and all of that, he just had me sit talking to, he was next to the camera, and asked me questions about me or whatever I liked and disliked. And, and um, I sort of forgot about the camera and talked with Sorold. And that's the test that eventually uh, won me the part and started, you know, a lovely career for me. The part that she would play would be in the 1953 film Roman Holiday, a story of a runaway princess who falls in love with an American newsman, played by Gregory Peck. This was the role of a lifetime, one that would skyrocket her career. Audrey shares her thoughts on the filming of Roman Holiday. Well, I had no sense, period, <laughs> in those days. I, I was awfully new and awfully young and doing my very first big movie. Thrilled to be doing it. But I was not even aware enough yet then of the significance of doing a picture for William Wyler, who William Wyler really was. I mean, I caught on very quickly. I was very new to everything. I mean, only... So it was only four years before that come out of Holland and a long German occupation, all of that, where we hadn't been able to keep up at all with, with pictures, and I was way behind, and there's so much I wasn't aware of, you know. So let alone think of me or future, or I'd, I didn't know it was going to lead even to another movie. Being that this was her first major film, Audrey had some things to learn. Here is the scene that she struggled with the most. As the princess is saying goodbye 
to the man whom she's fallen in love with. I have to leave you now. I'm going to that corner there and turn. You stay in the car and drive away. Promise not to watch me go beyond the corner. Just drive away and leave me. As I leave you. Don't try. And here she talks about how she mustered the tears to film that final scene in Roman Holiday. The last scene in the, pic- in the picture was in fact the last scene we were shooting. It was done mm-hmm. in sequence for once. And if you remember, Greg and I have to say goodbye in the car. And that's it. We have to separate. And clearly... I was supposed to cry. And it was late at night and I was tired and I played the scene very nicely and everything. But tears didn't come and I didn't know how to make them come. I hadn't ever tried or learned unless they came perfectly natural and nothing was happening. And Willie Weiler came over to our little car and gave me hell. Now he'd always been so adorable and very gentle to me and as I said, always bringing out the best in me and everything. He really let me have it, and I burst into tears, and he shot the scene. And when we come back, more on the life of Audrey Hepburn. And my goodness, what a crafty old cager William Wyler was to do that. And then he shot the scene, get the girl to go cry no matter what, and keep the camera rolling. That's Hollywood. When we come back, more on this amazing story, Audrey Hepburn's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to excerpts from the soundtrack of My Fair Lady. And if you have a chance, if your family hasn't seen it, if you haven't seen it in a while, if you've never seen it, it may be the greatest musical movie ever made. It was one of the greatest musicals ever written, and all based on George Bernard Shaw's classic comedy, Pygmalion. And then Trading Places, the Eddie Murphy movie, so many others followed the basic uh, plot line of My Fair Lady. Audrey Hepburn starred in it. That's why we're playing that music. And now we return to Faith and the real-life story behind the story of Audrey Hepburn's life. We left off talking about her first major film, Roman Holiday. Back to you, Faith. After this film, she was an overnight star. She had the opportunity to work with many wonderful directors and strong male leads. 
And in 1957, Audrey played Joe Stockton in Funny Face with co-star Fred Astaire, famous actor and dancer. Though she was beyond beautiful and charming, Audrey was a young woman with many insecurities. However, here she recounts the time that she first met Fred. I was never going to be a great dancer. I was too tall. I didn't have the training that I should have had when I was younger because of the war and so forth. But I might have gone on hoofing because I had to earn a living for some years more. I do remember the first time I met Fred Astaire and that was on the set. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I had a very sort of uh, slim kind of, slender kind of technique. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't a great technician at all. And uh, to be, you know, uh, cast opposite him was, was terribly exciting, but I was very apprehensive. You see, the minute I walked on the set, for the rehearsal, and we just had one working light and a piano player. He was so dear, and knew full well, I imagine, being a sensitive man, how I felt. But he was fun, made me relax, and before you knew it, there was some music going, and he said, let's try a few steps, and you know, off we went. I can say I think I, I became very good friends with, with, with Fred, and I adored him. And I was never, ever scared of him after that first hour. And of course, her role in Breakfast at Tiffany's as Holly Golightly showed her diversity in acting. But needless to say, there was some controversy over this role, considering that Holly Golightly is a call girl. I think for one thing, I don't think Truman Capote thought I was right for the part. And uh, I don't know, I think sort of some people thought that you know, it was a different era that it was a bit daring to play a call girl. The scene with the cat, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm putty about animals. I had four dogs now, but I've had, I've had everything in my life, and it was awfully tough to throw that lovely marmalade cat into the rain. And in fact, it didn't want to get out of the cab, and I had to push it out and shout at it and everything. But fortunately, I have the scene at the very end when I can go find it and hug it. And, and it was in Breakfast at Tiffany's where she sang the song Moon River. The head of the studio originally wanted to get rid of the song, but Audrey was there and told the head, Over My Dead Body. Lucky for them, because the song went on to win an Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1961.
Her acting career continued to diversify when she played Susie Hendricks in the film Wait Until Dark in 1967. This was a psychological horror thriller. It is in this film that she plays a blind woman. And while Audrey always claimed that she never became a true actress, she explains how she learned to play this role. That was a part that I was, you know, very happy to, 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 uh, to be given. But it did cause some anxiety for several weeks before we ever sort of started the picture. Because the studio did want me to be blind in some way and uh, were rather eager to either have me wear dark glasses or have a scar near an eye, you know, which worried me terribly. Because as I say, I'm not a I don't like the technique to show or even to be there. I also felt that this would draw attention to the fact that I'm not blind if you put makeup on somebody. So my hope was to do it from the inside out and to somehow convince the audience who knew that thank God Audrey Hepburn is not blind, but that I felt some for a fleeting moment could create an illusion of blindness. And two marvelous things happened. One was I spent several weeks going every day to the lighthouse in New York, the institution for the blind. I was blindfolded and I learned what it meant technically to be blind. To go up and down in elevators, to find something you throw on the floor, to make a meal, to find things in a room. But then I had another extraordinary stroke of of luck, I would say, but it was a blessing. I met a young girl who had, in fact, been blinded. And in no time at all, I'm sorry that right this second I can't remember her name, I said, do something for me. Find your way around this room. And I sat on my chair and just watched her. She had beautiful eyes, dark, shiny eyes. There was no way of knowing that she couldn't see. And then when there were times that she didn't feel the part, she learned that she could use her appearance to look the part. Because as I didn't have this technique of being able to deal with the part in, you know, however way it was, it was often an enormous help to know that you looked the part. Then the rest wasn't so tough anymore. Let's say you do a period picture, whether it was worn piece, when you wear high waists and little curls and crinolines or the nun story when you wear a habit once you're in that habit of a nun it's not that you become a saint you walk differently you feel something and it's also true if you've got rustling taffeta and and a fan or whatever it is you walk differently you sit differently you've got all the stays the that is an enormous help it's so true. I remember John Travolta saying once he got the hair down to a character, everything else was done. And so often we all know this, how we dress can make us feel different. And when we come back, more of this extraordinary life, the woman who gave us such remarkable movies as Roman Holiday, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Charade, and my family favorite, my favorite musical, my little girl's favorite musical, and my bride's My Fair Lady, more on Audrey Hepburn's story 
here on Our American Stories. stories and we return to the life of Audrey Hepburn. We pick up with Audrey talking about how to look the part when you don't always feel the part. And also in, in the modern day pictures, wearing Givenchy's, you know, lovely, simple clothes. If I was wearing a jazzy little red coat and, and whatever little hat was then the fashion, I felt super. And it gave me the feeling of whoever I was playing in charade, or Breakfast at Tiffany, or, or being, listen, walking down those steps, stairs, for the first time, beautifully dressed in My Fair Lady. Now, actually, what you see is just a dress. How could you miss? Yes. The last time the audience saw you, you were grimy and couldn't speak properly in whatever it is. The scene is set up in a glory way, the music, the, day, the, the second that you don't see anybody. And around the staircase I come in this absolutely sublime white ball dress, which was a genuine one, by the way, which Cecil uh, Beaton had found. It was a, an antique. Made up, my hair dressed to kill, diamonds everywhere. All I had to do was walk down the stairs. She referenced the film My Fair Lady. Originally a stage show, My Fair Lady is the story of a young cockney flower seller named Eliza Doolittle. She overhears an arrogant phonetics professor, Henry Higgins, as he casually wagers that he could teach her how to speak proper English, thereby making her presentable in the high society of Edwardian London. Here is the scene of her first meeting with the professor. All right, Eliza, say it again. The rhine in spine stays mainly in the plain. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Didn't I say that? No, Eliza, you didn't sigh that. You didn't even say that. Now, every night before you get into bed where you used to say your prayers, I want you to say the rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain 50 times. You get much further with the Lord if you learn not to offend his ears. Now for your H's. Now come here, Eliza, and watch closely. Now. You see that flame? Every time you pronounce the letter H correctly, the flame will waver, and every time you drop your H, the flame will remain stationary. That's how you'll know if you've done it correctly. In time, your ear will hear the difference. See it better in the mirror. Now, listen carefully. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen. Now, repeat that after me. In Hartford, Hereford and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen. In Hartford, Hereford and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen. Oh, no, 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 no. Have you no ear at all? Shall I do it over? No, please. 
For this role, Audrey was chosen over Julie Andrews, who had originated the role in the stage show. However, producer Jack Warner thought Audrey Hepburn more affordable, which caused quite a bit of upset, especially when Hepburn did not end up singing in the film, something that presumably Julie Andrews would have done. This was a monster role, but Audrey was ready to take it on. However, she was devastated when they dubbed her singing in parts with the voiceover actress Marnie Dixon, and she did not receive Best Actress. Instead, Julie Andrews did for her screen debut in Mary Poppins. While this was greatly disappointing, Audrey's career was truly a great one. But did Audrey ever consider her fame a burden? Never a burden, and there isn't really a downside. Like in everything, there's, you know, you can find a, a problem. I think the only time it was a little hard for me was, I think when my second son was born and I was at that time living in Rome and I could take him nowhere, not to a park, not down the street, not put him on a terrace without paparazzi. And that was very difficult because there again it wasn't me, he's bothering the child, you know, which really drove me mad. And as he began to be of an age that I could take him to the parks and everything because I lived in an apartment, to have photographers jump out from behind trees and he'd be in she'd be howling from, because he was so startled and that was very difficult but then again a dear friend who has a beautiful garden in Rome told me bring your child here with other children as often as you want I'd love to have them in the garden you'll make me happy so again I was very lucky so these are the little difficult moments that I've had I can think of no downside Audrey Hepburn experienced a lot of sadness. An unfaithful spouse and the loss of children through miscarriages made life difficult. And for her, being a mother was all she ever wanted, even more so than her acting career. Perhaps it was because her father had deserted her family, and she desperately wanted a loving family of her own. At age 63 years old, Audrey Hepburn went to Somalia on behalf of UNICEF. She used her stardom, something that she had never done, to bring the message to the world that these children needed help. Unfortunately, her own health began to fade. She got sick in Somalia and had to come home to Switzerland. Everyone thought that she would get better. However, when she returned home in 1992, she began suffering from abdominal pain. She had cancer and the cancer was already in its terminal state. Audrey Hepburn died on January 20th, 1993, surrounded by her partner at the time, Robert Walden, and her two sons. When she died, columnist Rex Reed said that Audrey Hepburn was proof that God could still create perfection. Her humility was one to be noted, perhaps, that is why she was so well-loved. Every moment she had in her career, she was always incredibly amazed and grateful for such an opportunity. When Audrey won the Tony Award in 1954, she wanted to thank all the people who had helped and nurtured a totally insecure, inexperienced, and skinny broad. No one saw her like that. She once said, 
How shall I sum up my life? I think I have been particularly lucky. She passed while still doing good to others. Her poised and elegant disposition has left its mark in the acting world and for those who have seen her films. Yes, she was indeed beautiful, but there was so much more to her than her charm and cool composure. She left this earth evidencing her priorities to the world. But if I'm with UNICEF, therefore, if I'm concerned about children today, it's still the same thread, if you want to call it, or reason, or quality, which I spoke about before with directors, with actors, with people, is that, yes, I went through a war. Surely that's made me a little more aware than some people might not have what it means to be hungry, deprivation, and so forth. Never do I think of that when I see a child in Africa who's at death's door. But what I've always had, and maybe that I was born with, was an enormous love of people, children. I loved them when I was little. I used to embarrass my mother by trying to pick babies out of prams, you know, that kind of thing. The one thing I dreamed of in my life was to have children of my own. It always boils down to the same thing of not only receiving love, but wanting desperately to give it, enormous need to give it. It is true that I had an extraordinary mother. She herself was not a very affectionate person in the sense that I today consider affection. I spent a lot of time looking for it and I found it. She was a fabulous mother, but she came from an era, she was born in 1900, Victorian influence still, of great discipline, of great ethics, lot of love within her, not always able to show it. I'm very strict. I went searching all over the place to find somebody who'd cuddle me, you know? And I found it in my aunts, in my friends. And it, that is something that has stayed very strong. Maybe it's my nature. I don't know, maybe with a different mother, it'd still be the same. And out of that comes enormous concern. And that is the reason for which I could not possibly refuse to help a child if I can. Now I've got to be careful how I sound. I have an enormous love for humanity and the human qualities in people when they come out. That is perhaps what has come through off the screen. And there you have it, the life of Audrey Hepburn. Great job on that as always, Faith. And it was a beautiful life, beautiful films, and beautiful work she did for the United Nations and UNICEF her entire adult life, always showing love for kids and kids with less than the rest of us. This is Our American Stories. Go to Our American Network to hear and see all that we do.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Dan Fogelberg's Same Old Ang Sign. And this is our Story of the Song segment. And we're not going to tell the story of this song, though it's a heck of a song. And we tell stories of songs that have a story themselves. And by the way, the opening lyrics of that song you just heard, Met my old lover in the grocery store. The snow is falling on Christmas Eve. You want to hear what happens, don't you? And we've all been there, too, meeting that person that we broke up with, that person we went to school with, maybe wanting to avoid, maybe wanting to see. In a canon of personal songs, leader of the band stands out as one of Dan Fogelberg's most treasured. The song, which originally appeared on the singer-songwriter's 1981 album, The Innocent Age, is Fogelberg's loving tribute to his musician father, Lawrence. Fogelberg wrote this in 2003 about his dad. He was a musician, an educator, and band leader. I was so gratified that I was able to give him that song before he passed on. Fogelberg's dad died in August of 1982, but not before this hit song made him a celebrity with numerous media interviewers interested in him as its inspiration. Here's Dan Fogelberg speaking about his hit single, Leader of the Band, in 1991. If I think I could only have written one song in my life, it would have been Leader of the Band. Because what that meant to my father and to me there's no way I could quantify that or even explain it. Um, my father passed away over 10 years ago now, and he, he got to hear that song. He got to see this, enjoy the success of that song. People were calling him on the phone and interviewing him in his last days. You know, who is this man, the leader of the band, you know? And he just, he loved that, and I loved that, because I, I respected him so much. I mean, he gave me everything I am, really. My mother and he were both musicians, and the idea of being a living legacy is really the truth. I don't think I'll ever be as accomplished a musician as he was, but um, I've had a different gift. It came to me in a different way. I've been able to reach and touch people with these songs that I write, and that one has probably touched more people more deeply than anything I've ever done. And by the way, don't we all want to have our sons and or daughters speak that way about us? And again, that's why we do these stories, folks, because you don't hear them anywhere else. Vogelberg's music was powerful in its simplicity. He didn't rely on the volume of his voice to convey his emotions. Instead, they came through in the soft, tender delivery and his amazing lyrics. Here, for example, is the chorus to leader of the band in which Vogelberg cherishes and aspires to someday possess the same love and musical ability as his dad. And these are from the song. This is the chorus. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. Here's Dan Fogelberg's love letter to his father, Lawrence. child alone and wild I can't 
cabinet maker's son His hands were meant for different work And his heart was known to none He left his home and went his lone And solitary way And he gave to me a gift I know I never can repay A quiet man of music Denied a simpler fate He tried to be a soldier once But his music wouldn't wait He earned his love through discipline A thundering velvet hand Gentle means of sculpting souls Took me years to understand The leader of the band is dead And his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument And his song is in my soul My life has been a poor attempt To imitate the man I'm just a to the leader of the band My brother's lives were different For they heard another call One went to Chicago And the other to St. Paul And I'm in Colorado When I'm not in some hotel Living out this life I've chose And gone to know so well And the story of the song, Dan Fogelberg's tribute to his dad, Lawrence. The story of his song, Dan Fogelberg's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. Thank you for the music and your stories of the road. I thank you for the freedom when it came my time to go. I thank you for the kindness and the times when you got tough. And Papa, I don't think I said I love you near enough. The leader of the is tired and his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument And his song is in my soul My life has been a poor attempt To imitate the man I'm just a living legacy To the leader of the band I am a living legacy to the leader of the band. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1942, lawyers argued a case before the Supreme Court called Wickard v. Filburn. This may not be a household name, but the landmark case dramatically expanded what the federal government could regulate as commerce. As always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can always come to you with her terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. To learn more about Wickard, we turn to Randy Barnett, the director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution and a professor of legal theory at Georgetown Law School. First, we asked Randy to tell us a bit about how things worked in America before this Wickard case was decided. Well, from the founding through the New Deal, it was commonly thought that the federal government only had very limited and enumerated powers, and the great bulk of the regulatory powers of government resided in states. So that began to change as progressives lobbied for um, increasing federal regulation of the economy and other matters, including such matters as, for example, alcohol prohibition. And eventually, this culminated in a series of court cases in which the Supreme Court initially declined to recognize or authorize federal power. But eventually, that situation changed, and Wickard versus Filburn is an important part of that change. Then we asked him to tell us a bit about Mr. Filburn himself and how he got involved in this big New Deal Supreme Court case. He was a dairy farmer, and he basically raised chickens um, and cows in order to sell milk and eggs to uh, the local population. (laughs) What happened is the Congress passed what was called the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and it was aimed at supposedly, quote, stabilizing farm prices, uh, which basically means keeping farm prices higher than what the market for farm products was at the time. And they did that by limiting supply of in this case, wheat, the wheat that uh, Filburn grew on his farm, they could raise the price of wheat by limiting the supply. That would be the way it works. And they did that, and they gave each farmer a quota. Filburn had a quota, and he grew more than his quota. He used the, the wheat that he grew to feed his livestock and then sell the proceeds of uh, his livestock to the general public. He also used it for seed for future years, and he he used a very small portion of it to feed himself and his family on his property. And he deliberately grew more than his allotted amount in order to provide a test case and challenge the Agricultural Adjustment Act as exceeding Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. Um, And so that's that's what he did, and eventually the case uh, ended up going into the Supreme Court. Now, if you could smell something funny about the federal government regulating how much a farmer could grow on his own property to take care of his own needs? Well, you're not alone. Here's Randy on the interests behind those regulations. The Agricultural Adjustment Act was probably uh, pretty popular amongst farmers because it was meant to raise the prices that they could charge by restricting the supply. And in fact, whether there would be a quota or not be a quota would be determined by a majority vote of the relevant farmers. This was a typical New Deal policy. They did similar things for many industries besides agriculture. And it was a way, in fact, for the Roosevelt administration to benefit business, uh, those businesses that currently exist, 
at least a majority of those businesses at the expense of the minority uh, by, in a sense, creating a government cartel in one business after another business. That was the general economic policy of the New Deal. And by the way, what was good for farmers was not good for the American public. I mean, artificially raising prices for poor people and working class poors, that's really difficult. And by the way, as you can tell, many of these arguments, we don't do politics here. This is a this day in history. But many of these discussions are still happening today. Now, of course, not everyone agreed with this government cartel, especially when the Constitution gave the federal government power to regulate commerce among the several states. There were dissenters to all these cartels, and Filburn was one of them, and that's why he brought the lawsuit. And so the point of the lawsuit was to say that it doesn't matter if a majority of farmers thinks they benefit by restricting supply so they can charge more. I don't think so, and I'm, I have a right to uh, use my property as I see fit and grow the wheat that I wish to grow to use uh, in order to feed my own livestock. I'm not selling the wheat uh, on the interstate market. I'm just using it in my own livestock to run my business, and so I should be entitled to do that. So how did the court decide the case, and how did that shape our nation's laws? It was a very difficult case for the Supreme Court. By the time this case was being heard in the 1940s, the court had already reversed some of its earlier rulings that limited federal power and had greatly expanded federal power. It allowed the federal government to regulate not only interstate commerce, which is what the Constitution gives to Congress, it also allowed them to reach inside a state and regulate intrastate activity that was not commerce because that activity had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that basically opened the door to regulating almost anything that was local, uh, provided it could be shown that it, or it could be alleged that it had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that greatly expanded the power of government. In this case, now it's the 1940s, and this, this so-called New Deal revolution had already taken place, and the court was almost entirely a product of Roosevelt's uh, Supreme Court appointments. All but one justice had been chosen by him. You would think this would be an easy case, but it turned out to be a difficult case. Why? Because Roscoe Philburn argued that he was not engaged in interstate commerce, and his paltry little farm could certainly have no substantial effect on interstate commerce. What he did was not going to affect interstate commerce at all. And so this really was a local matter uh, outside the purview of Congress. And, And the Supreme Court, even in the New Deal cases, it said it is important to distinguish between what's national and what's local. The New Deal Supreme Court said that, and Filburn could reasonably argue what I'm doing is as local as local can get. And as a result, it being such a difficult case, the court actually couldn't decide the case the first time it heard it. It heard argument in the case, and it deliberated, and it couldn't reach a decision. And finally, it decided to reschedule the case for the following year and hear argument again. What was bothering even these New Deal justices was it looked like if they were going to allow the federal government to reach even a farmer like Roscoe Filburn, then really all limits on federal power were off. And uh, that was a tough, that was something that was tough even for New Deal justices to swallow. So it took them a year to finally decide the case. The Supreme Court ended up solving or addressing the problem by saying that it didn't matter if Roscoe Filburn's wheat was a tiny amount that had no substantial effect on interstate commerce. What mattered is that all similar farmers like Roscoe Filburn, when you aggregate them all together as a group, have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that introduced the so-called aggregation principle into constitutional law, 
which means that not only may Congress regulate local activity that has a substantial effect on commerce, but it may regulate even trivial instances of local activity as long as it can be categorized as part of a larger group that would have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that gave Congress what looked like a pretty much unlimited power to regulate economic matters anywhere in the country. And that is how the case was read or interpreted. It's not actually what the case says, but it is what the case, how the case was read and interpreted and extrapolated for 20 or 30 years after it was decided. And until 1995, in the case of the United States versus Lopez, which involved what's called the Gun-Free School Zone Act, which made it a crime to possess a gun within a, a federal crime to possess a gun within a thousand feet of a, of a school. With the passage of that act in 1995, that became the first law in, I think it was 50 years, that invalidated the law uh, uh, because it exceeded Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. So for all of those years, the court had never seen a law that they thought had gone too far. And then finally, in Lopez, they did uh, find a law that went too far. Um, but they didn't reverse Wickard versus Filburn. They basically said, this is something that goes beyond Wickard. And they said that because in Wickard, they said that involved economic activity. What, what Roscoe Filburn was doing was economic activity. But possessing a gun within a thousand feet of a school is not economic activity. And what the, a five to four majority of the Supreme Court said is that, you know, that's on, there's no precedent for extending Congress's power even to local activity that's not economic, and therefore they drew the line between local activity that was economic that had a substantial effect on commerce, which Congress could reach under Wickard, and local activity that was not economic, which they said Congress could not reach. And some of the same old arguments today. It sounds familiar, right, listening to the, to the news of the day, the federal power versus the state and local power. Still playing itself out. It played itself out in the founding of this country. And we've been hearing from Randy Barnett, who teaches con law at Georgetown University and is the author of Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People. It's a great book. And this is Our American Stories. On this day in history, Wickard v. Filburn argued in 1942. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and anytime we can play Alison Krauss in the right context, we do. No one does the American songbook better, straight as an arrow. Let the song do the talking.
And it's time for our regular final thought segment. This is when we hear final thoughts from people who are dying, and also final thoughts from folks about those who have passed. A eulogy, a written tribute, anything that stirs the soul. And we've taken a few from this particular gentleman who writes periodically for the Wall Street Journal because he's a doctor. And doctors know firsthand a lot about death. And this is a man who has not insulated himself from the emotional impact of patients that die. And that makes him remarkable. This week's final thoughts feature is a powerful one from Dr. E. Wesley Ely. And again, he's a professor of medicine and critical care at the Nashville VA Medical Center and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Ely recently told the story in the Wall Street Journal, and it was called A Swimming Pool in the ICU. He graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. Swimming pool in the ICU? You must be you nuts. Must be nuts. The nurse's voice was almost lost among the whooshing ventilator and infusion pumps. Five days earlier, we had admitted Benny, a Vietnam veteran, to the intensive care unit of our VA hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Frail and wrinkled, he had a look of utter confusion and a furrowed brow that would pluck the heartstrings of even the most calloused physician. Decades spent in southern tobacco fields left him looking old enough to remember Hoover's presidency. Double pneumonia and too much sedation made him delirious. As his attending physician, I was thankful for his family. His daughter and son, Laura and Lynn, implored, take good care of dad, he's all we have. Seeing him on a ventilator is terrifying, they said, but we believe in miracles. While loving, such a mindset could become problematic since their father's situation had the makings of a fatal illness despite our best technology. With antibiotics and fluids, Benny improved dramatically and was taken off the ventilator several days later. That same night, though, a massive stroke paralyzed his entire left side and he went back on life support. We quickly administered clot-busting medicine and he rallied remarkably regaining movement of his left arm and leg. The following day, the intern reported, his delirium has cleared and he's mouthing words around the endotracheal tube despite this wicked aspiration pneumonia. I sensed an unexpected window of opportunity. We revisited Benny's life goals in light of what had happened and spoke directly about the big picture. With his children looking on, I held Benny's hand and looked him in the eyes. Choosing my words based on what I knew about his background and the family's expectation of miracles, I said, Benny, just like tobacco plants eventually wither and wilt, so do we. You have improved in some ways, but overall, you're very weak. How can we serve you best? The next morning, Laura and Lynn were upbeat, which confused me since Benny looked weaker than ever. They pointed to words on a whiteboard in the room, explaining they were Benny's goals. Stable vital signs, baptism. I spotted Kelly, our charge nurse, smiling like a cat who'd swallowed a canary. In her arms, she clutched a box containing a large vinyl swimming pool. 
First, I made sure this was actually Benny's request and not the family's. My next thought was that we'd have a chaplain anoint him with holy water in his bed. But Laura disagreed. Jesus wasn't sprinkled, Doc. He was dumped. A senior physician protested that the patient was on a ventilator and said he'd never seen a bedside baptism like this in 50 years of practice. There was no shortage of opinions about whether this was appropriate, safe, or even possible. A large area next to Benny's bed was cleared and an electric pump inflated the pool. When a large multi-person bucket brigade proved too difficult, an engineer rigged dialysis tubing to circulate the pool with a stream of warm water. Benny was then hoisted high into the air via a patient transfer lift. And the ventilator was unplugged before he was lowered into the pool. Lynn gently took his father, the man who'd showed him how to farm, into his arms. Following the cherished Christian tradition, he slowly submerged Benny's head, completely under the water, saying, Dad, I baptize you in the name of the God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amazing grace, how sweet the on cue, the palliative care social worker began belting out Amazing Grace. The rest of us stood frozen in time. First out of the water was blue corrugated ventilator tubing. Then his face appeared around the breathing tube. Benny's huge smile seemed to say, better late than never. When he died a week later, Laura implored me to tell other people about her dad, hoping his experience would show them that we can all become strong through our weakness. In fact, I've seen scores of patients and families use profound outer wasting as a catalyst for deep inner renewal. The most two important frames of our life are birth and death. We typically associate baptism with the former, yet Jesus spoke of his death as a baptism to indicate the formative next step that dying represents for our journey. The ICU team's bold yet careful response to Benny's unusual request taught me an enduring lesson regarding sympathy versus empathy. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. Empathy is feeling with someone. In all the surrounding insanity of the hospital that day, Diving deeply into Benny's life through his baptism on the breathing machine allowed all of us to be reborn too. Being with him in that pool and rising with him out of it, we walked into others' lives better prepared to serve them. And it doesn't get better than that, folks, and that's why we love running these stories. Uh, you know, you got to hold back a tear listening to that, and I love that definition of empathy and sympathy you know bono said of johnny cash when he was buried johnny cash doesn't sing to the damned he sings with the damned and i think that's why cash was so loved and god bless the folks who did this amazing thing uh and most folks in most hospitals just wouldn't have bothered too difficult splash a little water in his head that's it that's all we got we'll end here as we started our final thought segment Alison Krauss. Pray. 
stories and you're listening to duke ellington's take the a train from the film reveille with beverly from 1943 ellington was an american composer band leader and pianist who worked with louis armstrong ella fitzgerald dizzy gillespie and billy holiday he was born this week in history in 1899 and that brings us to this week in music history and here's jesse This week in music history, 1956, Elvis Presley scores his first number one single and album when Heartbreak Hotel went to the top of the charts. Although it's always crowded, you still can find some room for broken hearted lovers to cry Heartbreak Hotel became the first million seller and was the best-selling single of 1956. The lyrics were based on a newspaper article about the suicide of a lonely man who jumped from a hotel window. And just 20 years later, in 1976, after a gig in Memphis, Bruce Springsteen took a cab to Elvis Presley's Graceland home and proceeded to climb over the wall. Here's Bruce Springsteen with his account of what happened. I remember the night was real quiet, and we looked through those two gates with the guitar players on them, and I could see a light on in the second floor window. So I said, Steve, man, I gotta, I gotta try. And I jumped up over the wall, and I got down on the other side, and I started running up the driveway towards the front door. I don't know what I was planning on saying or doing. But uh, just as I got there, I started to knock, and a guard came out of the woods and asked me what I wanted. I said, geez, Elvis home? uh, He said, no, no, Elvis isn't here right now. He was pretty nice. He was talking to me like he expected me or something. (laughs) He said, no, he's gone away. And I told him that I was a guitar player, too, that I had my own band, and that we played in Memphis that night. And I told him, Remember, I told him that I had my picture on the cover of Time and Newsweek. <laughs> I really did once. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know, nothing worked, you know. <laughs> so he took me by the arm and he put me back out on the street. And Steve said, did you meet him? Did you meet him? No. <laughs> but it uh, wasn't too long after that that a friend of mine called me and told me that he died. And it was hard to understand how somebody 
whose music had come in and, and taken away so many people's loneliness, made you feel like you were part of something, and whose music gave, I know when I was young, gave me such a, such a, a reason to live or made me feel the promise of life, could have died so tragically. And uh, I guess you got to be careful. It's easy to let the best of yourself slip away. And born this week in music history, 1933, the one and only Willie Nelson, country music superstar and songwriter. He was born on April 29th, but his birth certificate was recorded on April 30th because he was born so close to midnight. Gee, ain't it funny how time slips away. And in 1983, American blues legend Muddy Waters passed away in his sleep at his home in Westmont, Illinois, at the age of 68. Well, I wish I was a catfish Swimming in a deep blue sea I would have all you good-looking women fishing he was a major influence on many acts, including Cream, Eric Clapton, Led Zeppelin. The Rolling Stones named themselves after Waters' 1950 song, Rolling Stone. I got a boy child coming, gonna be, he gonna be a Rolling Stone. Sure enough, be the Rolling Stone. Sure enough, be the Rolling Stone. Oh, well, he's a, oh, well, he's a, oh, well, he's a. And in 2005, the Dave Matthews Band agreed to pay $200,000 after their tour bus dumped human waste on a boatload of tourists in Chicago the following year. The bus driver, who was alone on board the bus at the time the sewage was dumped, was fined $10,000. The band had already donated $100,000 to two groups that protect the Chicago River and its surrounding area. The Dave Matthews Band offered their deepest apologies to more than 100 boat passengers who were on an architectural tour of Chicago. I like to be in America, okay by me in America, everything free in America, for a small fee in America. And in 1962, the soundtrack to West Side Story went to number one on the U.S. album chart. Buying on credit is so nice. One look at us and they charge twice. I have my own washing machine. What will you have, though, to keep clean? Skyscrapers bloom in America. Cadillac bloom in America. Industry boom in America. Well, in a room in America. He went on to spend a total of 54 weeks at the number one position. Lots of new housing with more space. Lots of doors slamming in our face. I'll get a terrace apartment. Better get rid of your accent. Life can be bright in America. If you can fight in America. Life is all right in America. If you're all white in America. And born this week in 1967, Tim McGraw, country singer and actor. Many of McGraw's albums and singles have topped the country music charts with a total album sales in excess of 40 million units in the U.S. McGraw had 11 consecutive albums debut at number one on the Billboard Albums chart, as well as 21 singles hitting number one on the Billboard Hot Country Songs chart. He's married to country singer Faith Hill and is the son of former baseball player Tug McGraw. Saying sugar pie, honey, darling, and 
1970, this week in music history, one-hit wonder Norman Greenbaum was at number one on the UK singles chart with Spirit in the Sky. The single became a gold record, selling more than two million copies from 69 to 70 and reached number three on the US Billboard Hot 100 chart, where it lasted for 15 weeks. And in 1968, the Jimi Hendrix Experience recorded Voodoo Child. It was featured on the Electric Ladyland double album and became a number one hit in the UK just two months after the guitarist's death. Jimi Hendrix's solo on the track was named the 11th greatest solo of all time in Guitar World's 100 Greatest Guitar Solos. And born this week in music history, 1933, the one and only James Brown. I feel good. Brown demanded extreme discipline from his musicians and dancers and held the practice of assessing fines on members of his band who broke the rules, such as wearing unshined shoes, dancing out of sync, or showing up late to stage. James Brown died on Christmas Day 2006 at the age of 73. And that's this week in music history. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
can't do no wrong. 